Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 127, where we will be covering the prologue and first chapter of Dead House Gates by Steven Erickson. That's how I'm going to say it from now on. Nice. Our next book club will cover chapters two and three of Dead House Gates. Dead House Gates. Why don't you lay our spoiler policy out there? So the spoiler policy is this. Liz has read this book. I have not read this book. Uh, and we go through and we try to to kind of get my initial exposure to it. Uh, and I make predictions at the end. So this podcast will remain spoiler-free for any of the material after Chapter 1 of Dead House Gates. That's going to get annoying. I'm not going to keep doing that. <laughs> but it's fun for now. Uh, we will cover, uh, we will discuss rather material from Gardens of the Moon, the preceding book, uh, but nothing after and you had a quick housekeeping note, am I, I correct? Yes, you're correct. I wanted to bring up something related to Apple Podcast, um, since a sizable portion of our audience still listens to us on Apple Podcast. There have been some pretty significant changes over there, uh, and it changes uh, slightly how you interact with us. So really, the, the crux of it is that Apple Podcast is trying to set the stage to allow Apple Podcasters, or Apple itself, to start charging for podcast subscriptions. So what this means is that any podcast that you have previously saved but did not actively subscribe to won't show up under your list of shows in the app. I found this out myself when I had an update and all of a sudden all these podcasts were missing. Uh, so if you in the past didn't subscribe to us or our show and now you're not seeing it, that would be why. You'll want to search for our podcast directly and follow our podcast, uh, which means hitting the plus symbol in the upper right-hand corner of the screen. Then our podcast will show up in your shows section. So now we have to ask the real question. Is there a metal song out there called Dead House Gates? And if not, why not? Dead house. It's a dead house. <laughs> it's full of skeletons and stuff. I don't know. I'm not a, a songwriter, but I'm just saying, if you are, any listeners who are songwriters, write us a song. Sorry, right, let's check out what Google has to say. Uh, yes. What? <laughs> There's a song called Dead House or Gates? A, or a band? Either a band right. or a song. We will we will further investigate and and let y'all know. More how it... shall be revealed. <laughs> but yeah, the start to this book is so metal. Uh, I mean, it's. I mean, you wicked. thought that the start to Gardens of the Moon was so metal with you know haunted puppets and stuff, but this exploding guy may have flies. It's pretty. It's heads pretty being there. sawed off with a chain. I mean, it is. It is out there from the start but let's go back to the beginning and start going through the dramatis personae and talk about some of the characters that are going to be introduced so i read through the dramatis personae and obviously we're not going to uh you know go through every right. name in yes. the list but i had a couple that stood out to me which ones uh so i mean the very first one i think in like the second section is Mm-hmm. so 
you know, this is Gano's favorite sister. Right. Uh, and and we also know that we have seen her name show up in several of the Snapters mm-hmm. as somebody who is a prominent historian or wrote some sort of a book about this time that gets referenced in a lot of the, the different material. So that is uh, the first one that I noticed. Yes, we didn't meet Felison in Gardens of the Moon, but we mm-hmm. met her sister Tavor, who called Felison too soft for this world. We shall see. We shall see. The next one that I noted uh, was Corbolo Dom. Mm-hmm. And my question is, is he really a Dom or is he like a men's rights activist who is, quote, taking care of, unquote, his grandmother? <laughs> we shall see. I don't know. <laughs> We're going to find out. Uh, and then towards the end, I noticed Apt, mm-hmm. who is an Aptorian demon. And I thought, this is the point where he's finally started to run out of run names. Out of names. <laughs> he's, I don't know, name it Apti. Yeah, right. I feel like this is the equivalent of um, Brandon Sanderson naming their the Parshman character Shen. Yeah. Parshi, old Parshi. <laughs> So a couple that I picked out was um, first, one of the first sections are characters on the path of the hand. Mm-hmm. And that gets referenced pretty early in the book it as does. well. Yeah. And two of the characters that we have actually heard their names before briefly were Akarium and Mapo. Akarium was mentioned as being the maker of the wheel calendar in Darudistan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is a character who is very, very, very old and was known to Anamanda Rake. In Gardens of the Moon, Anamanda Rake tells a story about visiting Ikarium 800 years ago and getting into a fight with his buddy. How can you even remember what you fought about 800 years ago? It's funny because there was an episode of Doctor Who where they kind of had this character who became immortal but who was human sorry this is a bit of a tangent but i promise i'm gonna bring it back anyway what was interesting about that character was she had this immortal lifespan but a human brain so literally could not remember you know (laughs) more than like one or two lifetimes back and i was like goodness sake that's never done in these immortal i thought it was so interesting but akarium is not human and so can remember or you would think would be able to remember. We shall see. We shall see. Um, I also noted that some of the bridge burners were on this list. Yes. So we see Fiddler, Callum. We also see Absalar and Crocus and Topper, but we do not see on there Whiskey Jack. No, or Quick Ben. Or or Quick Ben, or a lot of the other bridge burners. Yeah. Um, we see Cotillion and Shadow Throne on there. Mm-hmm. We see some of the Hounds of Shadow. We do, yep. Noted on that the as list. Well. Mm-hmm. And then I just thought it was interesting to note the categories that they had on there. The Red Blades, the Wiccans, the Nobles on the Chain of Dogs, and the Followers of the Apocalypse. So if you yeah. had to pick one of those groups, going in blind, you have no idea what they were, which one would you pick? Uh, pick to do what? Just to be a part of. To be a part of? You had to be a Wiccan, a Red Blade, a Noble on the Chain of Dogs, or a Follower of the Apocalypse. Let's see. Followers of the the Apocalypse are probably going to die in a suicide pact. (laughs) 
So I'm out. Um, I mean, the Wiccans sound cool. Mm-hmm. You know, from the Wiccan Plains, that's that sounds pretty groovy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do the Red Blades. I I, th- I want to lean towards the Chain of Dogs because I know that the Chain of Dogs is somehow tied to Cotain. I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all I know about it. Um, but I don't know that I want to be a noble on the Chain of Dogs. That sounds like you're on the wrong end of that. <laughs> Definitely sounds like you're on the wrong end. Of I don't. The chain yeah. Of dogs. So I think I'm going to say the Wiccans, even though I, I, I somehow feel like the Wiccans don't end up well in this book. But that's mostly because I think everything ends bad in this book. It really, it's a safe assumption. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anybody's got it good. I'm, I'm, I'm casting my lot with the Wiccans. You're at best going to get a sort of hopefully grim outlook. I mean, <laughs> like things suck, but they might get better. Like that's kind of your best case scenario. Yeah, for... <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Circle Breaker got to run off into the sunset. That's true. We have seen one. Well, so far, so far. Happy ending. All right, well, let's get into the prologue a little bit. And we like to start off with talking about the snapters when we start a new book. Mm-hmm. And that is our term when we couldn't remember what the word epigraph. And we started. Who, I mean, who can really say? <laughs> you know, words are, language is fluid. That's right. We're starting a new word. So the snapter for the, before the prologue um, is written by Talk the Younger. And it's a familiar piece we've seen in the Snapters of Gardens of the Moon called The Bridge Burners. And um, it says, What see you in the horizon's bruised smear that cannot be blotted out by your raised hand? So I just really like Stephen Erickson's poetry. I I like it. So I read that and I thought one of two things. Either Talk the Younger is telling us that something like a city is going to burn— or that there's some like cosmic event, like a comet from like the comet from Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. But we haven't seen it yet. If I had to guess, I'd say more the former than the latter. Mm-hmm. Or it's like as it speaks to kind of the perspective that you can get um, from any disaster by standing far enough away. That's mm. kind of like what I took from it. I could just be reading too much in it. No, I think that's great. I think it's brilliant. So uh, the timeline for the prologue uh, is cited as being in the 1163rd year of Burns' sleep, the ninth year of the rule of Empress Lazine, the year of the cull. That can't be good. Right? You never want to be like, hey, what year is it? It's the year of the cull. Oh. Oh, no. Well, that's not good. (laughs) So... Yeah, so we start here in this prologue um, in the 1163rd year. We started the last book uh, in the 1161st year of Itko's, of um, Burn Sleep in Itko Khan, where Sari uh, was born and Ganos became the adjunct's assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not 100% clear where the last book ends. I went through and I tried to look at um, a bunch of the chapter, you know, snapters and precedings, uh, epigraphs from Gardens of the Moon, and I couldn't find a date on all of them. Um, but what I did note is that in chapter 14, uh, which is where Lorne and Tool were walking through the Gadrobi Hills, 
This also took place in 1163. Yes, so this book picks up right after, in the same year as the events of Gardens of the Moon. So I kind of wrote down the years that we know in Gardens of the Moon. Um, In 1154 of Burn Sleep, that is when Peron meets Whiskey Jack for the first time, and Tattersail and her cadre uh, burn the crap out of Mala's city, Mm -hmm. sort of by accident. Um, then in 1161, like you said, that is when Sari and Riga, uh, Riga is killed. Uh, Sari is born. Uh, the hounds are loosed in Genebacus, all of that stuff. And then 1163 is the siege of Pale, the battle of Darugistan, the defeat of the Jagu tyrant and the planting of the thinnest house. So it looks as though the events of Dead House Gates are maybe months or weeks after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Because obviously we find out here as we go into the prologue that Tavor has been instated, um, at, you know, where Lorne right. has abandoned the post. Right. Um, and has gone missing. I think, I guess, assumes they don't know that she's dead. I, I think they do. It may be, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it seems like, you know, this is simply later in the same year. Which is kind of cool because a lot of things were left hanging yeah i'm glad we didn't jump forward five years or something like that well let's get into the summary of the prologue all right let's do it our story begins in unta capital of the malazan empire ganos paran and the bridge burners have just gone awol and adjunct lorne was killed by agents of the eel in unta we witness the fallout from these events particularly how they relate to the paran family Gano's sister Tavor has been made the new adjunct and put in charge of the cull, a brutal purging of the nobility and any other dissidents that the empress wants to get rid of. Among the victims of the cull is Tavor's mother. Her younger sister Felicin is being sold into slavery, along with an ex-priest named Haboric and a thug named Baudin. Baudin and Haboric save Felicin from being ripped to pieces by the enraged crowd on the way to the slave ship. If that wasn't grim enough for you, there's literally a guy made of flies. Mm. So uh, just a quick note to our listeners who are also audiobook listeners or also just more knowledgeable about pronunciations than we are. Uh, Chad and I are, you know, book readers and we do not always get the pronunciations right. So please let us know because I know it will drive you crazy listening to 10 episodes of us saying Baudin, if it's supposed to be Bowden, I don't or know. Badin or whatever. Yeah. So basically, what we're saying is if you find out, you know, if you know what the correct pronunciation is, you have to let us know. Because if you listen to 10 episodes of us saying the wrong thing, it's your fault. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just take it down a notch there, buddy. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a little strong. <laughs> so this, epi- this chapter, this prologue starts with a fly mm-hmm. ghost. A fly ghost. Right? It's a fart that was so bad, (laughs) it created a cloud of flies. I mean, (laughs) that is how you start a book. It's pretty cool. It is definitely pretty cool. So for me, like the first time I read this, I, I, you kind of open it up. You go, where are we? Okay, we're in a place with names like Judgment's Round and the Avenue of Souls. Mm -hmm. Like, so... At, you know, in the season of rot and the thirsting hour. So, like, a real party town, yeah, obviously. Right, yeah. So, and, and Unta I... Unta is not... <laughs> it's not... It's, it's not, not the most whimsical city. No, it's not Vegas. <laughs> it's 
not. No. So, but but that tells you something, I think, and I think this is a clever way in which Steven Erickson uh, sort of reveals some sort of underlying truths to you, in that this is not a unique event mm-hmm. like that's happening here. Right. It it is by no means is it unique. This is you know called the judgment round and the you know avenue of souls or whatever because this event has been happening for years and years. I'm certain preceding Lacine. It's not. I mean, I don't know this for certain, but I would be stunned if this is something that Lacine has invented. Well, it's not very clear. It definitely seems like Lacine is rules with a much harder hand than her predecessor, you know, especially when you look at when we start to talk about Coltane and Mm -hmm. how he is someone who uh, originally had uh, led an uprising against the empire and that Kellenved, the previous emperor gained his allegiance to where he now fights for the empire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody knows how, but that was sort of seems as though that was more Kellenved's, M.O. is that he was able to get people on his side versus Lazine, who seems to just really just kill everybody who. I mean, maybe Lazine. Went, maybe Lazine went through and she was like, "My first act as Empress is to change, um, you know, Paradise Way into the Avenue of Souls, <laughs> and, and you know, and Strawberry Shortcake Round is now going to become <laughs> Judgment Round." <laughs> Like, maybe that's the first thing she did as maybe. Empress. I don't Who know. Who knows? Who knows? Um, so we also learned that Unta is the capital of the Malaz. I mean, we knew that this was the capital mm-hmm. of the Malazan Empire, but it's it's a coastal city. It's surrounded by salt marshes and a reef. Um, we also learn that the season of rot, so we, it's always interesting to look at how the calendars work and the, you know, um, the seasons kind of work. Um but it's mentioned that the seasons of the season of rot brings pestilence and that it had come an unprecedented three times in the last 10 years. So this is not something that's uh, a season that occurs by the calendar per number of days. It more kind of describes what's going on in the environment, uh, environment. or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we start off just in the first couple of oh paragraphs. Goodness. Not only like this guy made of flies, basically, but it describes like a dead mule on the ground that's full of flies to where it's like exploding. Like it's. Yeah, it's so. Yeah, we start off with, you know, a dog and a mule dying in the street. Nobody's coming to help or end their suffering. You know, and I think that's a telling symbol of the dysfunction in Unta. And then we have the thirsting hour. We talked about the, you know, the fly cover dude. But this is where Hood's servants cover themselves in the blood of the executed mm-hmm. and allow flies to cover them as a, quote, celebration uh, of the final day of the season of rot. <laughs> I mean, this is gruesome, grim, grim, grim stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just gets grimmer. So we move on to this this line of the priest approaches this line of prisoners one of which is Paran's youngest sister Felicin mm. who uh has been sold into slavery by her sister Tavor who has been made the adjunct and we have this interaction between um the the fly 
fly man slash mm-hmm. who everyone assumes is a priest of Hood and a man who is chained next to Felicin. Well, I think I think it's clearly indicated that it is it it was at least was a priest of Hood. Right, right. But for me, I just noted that we get this reminder that the gods of this world, the higher powers here, are they're powerful, but they're equally powerful and they're in opposition to each other to the point where they're all wary of each other Mm -hmm. because like even like chained up with no hands heberic who is an ex-priest wasn't cowed by this this priest of hood he was kind of like what do you want you know so um you know and the and the priest of hood who is you know free and covered in flies and stuff still was wary of the power of fenner who was the wolf god of summer Mm mm-hmm so it's just kind of a reminder of like how the dynamics lay between the, the the higher powers. And it's such a great example here of um Steven Erickson's writing this scene where the 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 priest of hood approaches and Felicin assumes that he's coming for her because mm-hmm. you know she's a noble and she's also a teenage girl who's completely self-centered. Mm-hmm. Um but it's just like for me the this is the the kind of quintessential uh, Malazan scene because you've got this like these like grand epic conflicts between higher powers overlaid um, on top of these like really intimate moments of human like misery or even human yeah. just human feelings. You well, know, it's I, all kind of happening at once. So you really connect with Felicin and how she's feeling because it's just such a horrific moment, you know, but at the same time, then you're like, oh, but what's going on with these higher powers over here? I think it's also, with everything you said being true, I think it's also that you have this sort of, I'll say for lack of a better word, petty human maneuvering and positioning and political you know, situation because you have Tavor selling her sister into slavery, I'm sure, as a way to curry favor with Lacine in some perverted way. Uh, so it's all this political jockeying. But then on the metaphysical, spiritual level, you also have uh, this spiritual dick measuring competition going on. Right. You know, so it's happening at both the human and the God level. And it's told like almost from the the point of view of this this teenage girl who is you know really just it's hard for her to care about anything else other yeah. than the fact that you know one minute she was sort of a pampered noble woman slash scholar and now she's barely avoided death her mother has just been killed and she's being sent to a slave ship so she's kind of like you know barely even notices and completely dismisses the people on either side of her um, and. You know, I love the part where he's talking about how the the flies had a thousand eyes and they were all focused on her. Mm-hmm. You know, and it um it just really highlights how her character is feeling right now. I was completely just drawn into her experience, even at the same time wondering what's going on with these ascendants and stuff. So we have the cull happening. So so hold on, um, before we get into that. So of course, Fallison realizes that it isn't her that Hood is coming for, and it's her, quote, companion, according to the Dramatis Personae Heberic. Uh, again, that's another name you're going to have to pronounce, help us pronounce. But uh, Feberic Light Touch, and he, of course, is the priest of Fenner, as you said. And the fly Hood 
ghost, whatever it is, comes up and says, I have a secret to share. Oh, right. And then, poof, a strong wind comes by, blows all the flies away, and then instead of there being some horrific, eaten-up priest of hood, there's nothing. Mm -hmm. It's gone. So we have this, you know, this very gross spectacle going on, and then we have this metaphysical event happening in, in the middle of it. And by the way, this is not like, this just, this is like random happenstance. It's mm -hmm. not like a ceremony or a big thing. This is just something spontaneous that happened in the middle of this event. You know, and we don't, I, I certainly have no idea what happened. Um, at first I thought that the priest was consumed Mm -hmm. By the flies, um, which, you know, for a priest of hood would be a telling, you know, a pretty appropriate way to go. Mm -hmm. uh, but now I, I think it has more to do with hood and Fenner, you know, having some sort of uh, metaphysical tiff. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't really say beyond that. So what's happening here is the call. And we've seen this before. We've seen Lysine do this uh, in other cities that she's conquered, but apparently now she does it in her own capital as well from time to time. And it just makes you think, like, what kind of ruler only keeps power by routinely killing everyone of influence who possibly might might be able to challenge her like it's kind of crazy well i mean it's not like we don't have modern real world examples of that same thing happening well exactly yeah. and that's i think that's what one of the things i really like about steven erickson's writing and what i like about fantasy writing in general is it's a way of just getting an outsider's perspective on the phenomenons that we see in our own culture and our own world and mm -hmm. you really can see steven erickson's background as a sociologist mm -hmm. um and especially in some of the quotes, even from this first chapter, you really see that. I really like the emphasis in this prologue on the power of history. So Haboric is being sold into slavery because he wrote a revisionist history of some of the events of Lazine's life. And it just shows the length that she will go to in order to be able to control the narrative and the importance of information. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's happenstance that Felicin is also a historian. No, no, no. I'm sure it's not. It, well, it's, you know, I, I think it becomes clear, and I believe it's even mentioned in the text. Actually, I know it's mentioned in the text, you know, that this is, you know, this is a convenient way to get to squash dissent get rid of political enemies and also, you know, slake the bloodthirst of mm -hmm. the of the of the the peasant classes and the mob. What I I think is not stated anywhere in the text but is really compelling to me is to think about what is going through Tavor's head. Like to me the most compelling unspoken part of this prologue is everything that's happened with Tavor. Yeah, and the whole scene is just given this extra layer of poignancy when you look back on the brief conversation that we've seen Tavor have with her brother. And, you know, when you look back on that conversation, she was someone who was uh, unhappy to be bearing the burden of managing the family. So... <laughs> You know, Peron went off. He wanted to be a soldier. He, you know, kind of 
against his family's approval, went off to try and join the military. Mm -hmm. And Tavora was left being the kind of the political manipulator, the person who was going to carry on the family legacy. And uh, Peron always kind of put her down for that. Mm -hmm. You know, you look back on their very like passive aggressive little conversation where, you know, she kind of tries to hold him to task a little bit like, hey, you know, by the way, thanks for leaving me with all of this. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, still making up for all of my failings, blah, blah, blah. You know, he kind of like, you know, um, he kind of gaslights her a little bit. A little bit, yeah. It's, uh, and then he's like, is Felicity your rival now, you know, now that I'm God? And she's like, ugh. Well, and, and I think that conversation shows you, a, a, depending on how you want to look at it, a slight degree of hypocrisy mm-hmm. in Tavor because she's complaining about being left with the responsibility of managing the family estate. Mm-hmm. And now she is managing the empire for Lacine. Right, uh, but you just want you just don't know how much choice she had in the manner. Yeah, we true. know from yeah. Lauren's from being in Lauren's perspective, Lauren wasn't given a choice. Yeah, you know, and that and that is kind of what I was hinting at earlier, where I said, you know, I, I'm. It's fascinating to think about what was going on with her through this whole event, and we don't know. She simply walks through the crowd on horseback at some mm-hmm. point. And we hear about her third, you know, hear about her third hand, but we don't obviously get any of her perspective. Mm-hmm. But what we know is that everything that you said about um, Ganos, but then Ganos disappears. Mm-hmm. The father apparently dies. Mm-hmm. And then she is made the adjunct and is forced to choose between killing her mother or her sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, sell, you know, kills her own mother, sells her sister into slavery. What kind of a horrid choice mm-hmm. is that to have to make, right? And it says in the text, you know, she did this to clear the family name. But again, we don't really know how much choice she had in the matter. Was it that she was, you know, doing it out of pride for clearing the family name by punishing those who betrayed the family name uh, or was it done in a pursuit of power? Was this malicious and bloodthirsty? Was it just a horrid choice that she got? You know, it was that or her that was getting killed. We really don't know, but um, what's got to go through your head. And I'm really, I really hope we get to see her perspective and learn more about the events that immediately preceded this Mm -hmm. at some point. Yeah, and it is kind of cool to speculate on because on, on one hand, we have Felicity's thoughts on this, which, again, as a young girl in an extremely traumatic situation, from her perspective, Tavor is, you know, obviously she did it because they had a difference of opinion, and she certainly seems to see it as a a malicious act, an act of vengeance. Mm-hmm. Haboric seems to be kind of nudging Felicity to... Uh, the perspective that, you know, I, I think your sister means for you to survive yeah. on the way to the slave ship. Well, and, and, yeah, and the fact that Fellison is at the end of the line sort of between these two mm-hmm. might lead you to believe she manipulated that to help her get to the slave ship. Mm-hmm. Who knows? That right. That is entirely speculative, and it could not be true at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could be that she was placed where she was placed between these two men on on purpose Mm -hmm. well she certainly did end up surviving because of Haboric and 
particularly Bauden. And Bauden, who yeah. we haven't really talked about yet. Yeah. But before we get into Bauden, I want to I want to stick on this sort of thread of the of the Perron family um, or Perron family. We get to finally sort of see the impact of Geno's betrayal. Mm-hmm. And all of these consequences are happening because of his actions. And we know from being in his head uh-huh. that he was not thinking about this. I, yeah, I had the same note as well. Yeah. Like, he He's, didn't think about it for even a second. Not a second. He was way too preoccupied with vengeance and dating his 200-year-old slash five-year-old five girlfriend. <laughs> it's really Yeah, I'm not true. letting that go. It's really true. Like, at no point... Did he think mm-hmm. about this? Right. He, he, he did. He did. Like there was a, a sort of prophecy curse that was put on him that somebody, you know, close yes. to him would die. Yeah. And at some point he's like, you know, it, it crosses his mind that that's still out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we get to see, uh, we get to see that curse play out and it plays out in a pretty horrific yeah. way. Yeah, so we can only hope at this point that when we meet up with Peron again, we'll get, you know, an inkling of his reaction. But I really do like how, you know, first of all, this this world is so vast. And I, I feel like, so for me, the first time I read this book, I was very frustrated by it because it, and, I, and if I had known going in this was going to be the case, I think it would have been easier to know that a lot of the characters from gardens of the moon are not even going to show up because we're yeah. basically just showing you what was happening on the other side of the world as the fallout from what happened on Jinnabacus. Yeah. Um, but the world is really just that vast that, that it kind of takes two books to cover the same year. So if you're reading this for the first time, don't wait for Tattersail. Yeah. <laughs> to come up because you just got to wait a little bit. But um, but it really is kind of cool at like how just wide and rich this world building is. Um, yeah, I noticed too that Paran kind of was like didn't even think about what was going to happen to his family that we know about, and and we 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 think you know is it possible that Tavor being chosen as the next adjunct is direct punishment for him having been partly responsible for even though he really wasn't, uh, but for the death of the previous adjunct. It's um, it's hard to know because you could certainly see that, but on the other hand, you know, in this world where they don't have cell phones and you just don't know how much information is getting back to Lacine or what she knows or doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Ganos Peron was a, a a pretty minor bit player in the Empress's mind. Mm-hmm. Does she realize how much of an imp- you know of how much impact he actually had? It, it's it's hard to know. I, I still think. There is more to the Perron family than we know, and uh, the elder, uh, the father who died, had some sort of dealings going back with Kellenved right. that we don't really know about yet. Well, let's talk for a minute about the two men that Felicen is kind of paired with in this prologue. The priest that she is next to is named Heboric Light Touch. He is a, a ex-thief, ex Priest, ex-historian. Ex-person with hands. Ex-person with hands. That's pretty horrible. It's pretty horrible, but he, he keeps a pretty jolly outlook, it seems, even for being uh, in the situation that he is. Yeah, um, he shows up. He's like, my name's uh, Hebrick Light Touch. My touch is 
very light now, and he shows his <laughs> stumps. Yeah, he was a little jokey about it. I mean, I what are you going to do? Uh, however, he is recognized by both Felicin, which you would kind of understand, and Bodden, which is uh, a, a bit unusual. Bodden is uh, what presents as this very stereotypical kind of thug slash criminal. He's pretty evasive when he is asked, you know, what house he's from. He says, the house of shame. <laughs> but he has read and is familiar with Bodden's, uh, with, I'm sorry, Heboric's illegal history that mm. he wrote and was quickly banned. Um, and he's he's seems pretty in the in the know about who the red swords are and things that are happening around the city. Well read for a street tough. Yes, exactly. Haboric also I also noted that Haboric mentions Duker, who we meet in the next chapter as being someone who defended him when he was put on trial. Obviously not successfully. Yes. <laughs> and also the other the last note that I have is they're being sold off uh, to the slave ships of Aaron. Uh, and I mm-hmm. had to look up. It, it took me a few times to be like, okay, yeah, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're going on a slave ship. Yeah, okay. Wait a minute, slave ships of Aaron, wait, that's a city. I can, or a place or a people, I can look that up. So that is uh, one of the cities in the seven cities. So they're, uh, it seems as though they are, they're getting on a ship to go to uh, the next continent over. So I wrote down a quote from this prologue that I really liked. It says, people of civilized countenance made much of exposing the soft underbellies of their psyche. It was easy for them and safe. And, you know, we were talking about just the the social observation that you get in this book. And I really, I picked that quote out as a particular example of that. And, um, you know, just one of those things that you read and you're like, oh, that's true. You know, that's, that's, true of the world in general. He goes on to talk about how Tavor, as the adjunct, knew this about her people, you know, the nobles. Yeah. Um, that they kind of prided themselves on being sensitive and, and caring and all this kind of stuff, and that she exploited that weakness by just kind of layering shock upon shock. You know, she had the nobles dragged out of their beds in the middle of the night, you know, didn't give them a chance to rally or try to defend themselves at all. You know, when you look at the scene that's set here, it's all of these nobles pretty much lined up, chained up in their nightgowns. And they're still like trying to go about things in the old way. And in fact, the noblewoman kind of two two chains down from Felicity is saying, you've got to talk to your sister, you know, you know, and, and Felicity's like, who do you think put us here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and she's insisting that they'll they'll be well treated. It's they'll, like you you, know, you haven't been well treated. What yeah. makes you think it's going to get better? But I just think it's so neat. I mean, not neat in like that that is enjoyable, but neat in the in the terms of storytelling. How the call was was presented in Gardens of the Moon, and we kind of saw it from an outsider's perspective, this sort of like clinical perspective, even though it was awful, and like we applauded. When Dujek stymied um, the, the the attempt to perform it in pale, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. It was also you can kind of from an outsider's perspective be like, oh, but I understand why Lazine does that. That's kind of smart from a military aspect. The grim reality of it wasn't presented. Yeah. And now we have a yikes. very grim reality. The forearms dangling. How she talks about it at the yeah. end. So three hundred people started 
chained together and there were fewer than 100 yeah. at the end and there were just body parts like hanging off the chain you know and at the end there's this scene where so the slaves are being marched the noble slaves are being marched through the city and every now and then the guards on either side kind of allow the mob to come through and just rip someone apart yeah and at the end the guards just sort of melt away and the crowd comes in and is just gonna kill everyone and Bauden kind of sees what they want and just performs this gruesome grisly murder of the woman in front of him mm-hmm. and throws her head into the crowd um saying is this and it's so shocking that the the crowd is like ah you know and they they're able to pass through but you just know that if that if he hadn't done that you know it would have yeah. been a very short story mm-hmm. for some of these characters we know that Felison survives going into it so it you know that somehow she's going to make it through and that i don't think that robs it of any of its power i think it almost in a way makes it more palatable mm-hmm. you know that like as you're you're reading these awful things that are happening you're like well i know that somehow she makes it through this even if it's only subconscious well, let's go on to chapter one. I, I do want to read the one of the snapters here before this chapter. It goes, He swam at my feet, powerful arms in broad strokes, sweeping the sand. So I asked this man, What seas do you swim? And to this he answered, I have seen shells and the like on this desert floor. So I swim this land's memory, this uh, thus honoring its past. Is the journey far, queried I. I cannot say, he replied, for I shall drown long before I am done. So much here. Okay, first, the fact that the desert used to be an ocean Mm -hmm. is important. Yeah. Just put a note in that. Put a pin right there. And I just, I love the idea of honoring the land's memory. It's so beautiful, for one thing. And it's so significant in this world of these ageless beings who have probably, some of whom have seen probably the land transform. And the other one goes like this. And all came to imprint their passage on the path to scent the dry winds, their cloying claims to ascendancy. And this is by Misremb. It's called The Path of Hands. And this is a term we've seen in the Dramatis Personae as the, being the people on the path of hands. What would be the French pronunciation? Misremb? Yeah, I kind of almost... If I spelled it right in my notes, I don't even know. Misremb? I I've almost thought of it as like resmembre or something, but that's not right. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. We're not going to get it right. Someone's going to have to correct us. So It's going to be like, you idiots. You idiots. Okay, so the timeline for chapter one, we have finally made it past 1163. I know. Right? <laughs> we are in the 1164th year of Burns Sleep. I don't know how much better it gets. year of the rule. It does it. It's just, you know. <laughs> It's like 2021. We're moving. At least we're going forward. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. 2021's been great. Uh, but it is the 10th year of the rule of Empress Lazine, the sixth in the seven years of Drajna, the apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah pronounce that one. Drajna. Yeah. I'm going with Drajna. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I really like how, you know, we've, we're in a new location, so we get a new calendar. Mm-hmm. We don't know quite what that means yet, but we do are going to be hearing the name Drajna 
quite a bit. Yeah, and it's like uh, like I think one of the oceans is uh, named that or, or something as well. And you know, and this is the sixth of the seventh year of uh, I I thought it was Drijna, but close Drajna. enough. Uh, it, it it makes it dry. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, dries me right up. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's supposed to be the sixth of the seventh year of the you know Drajna's apocalypse apocalypse or apocalyptic whatever except that nate you know that dryness apocalypse is something from the past where it's referenced as though it is something that already occurred so that is a little perplexing or maybe i'm just misunderstanding something well we can get into that a little bit later because the name does come up in this chapter okay. i think so the sun, the summary for this chapter. In the desert of Panpatsan Odan, Mapo Runt and his traveling companion, Ikarium, are searching for answers to Ikarium's past. They run across a Diver shapeshifter named Rolanderus, who is hunting a demon. Powerful creatures have been converging on the desert, looking for the path to ascendancy. In the Seven Cities, Duker the historian watches the arrival of Coltane, fist and leader of the Wiccans. A former enemy of the Empire, Coltane has been brought in to put down the insurrection currently brewing. The political situation is tense and complicated and bound to get even more so. Elsewhere in the Seven Cities, Fiddler, Callum, Crocus, and Absalar sneak onto shore with a very dangerous goal, to assassinate the Empress Lazine. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, and so this chapter is really, you know, three sections. We have the desert in Raraku, we have uh, Coltane's arrival on this in the... Um, in the seven cities, and we have uh, our our friends, the the small band of bridge burners, along with Absalar and Crocus. So mm-hmm. three sections. I sort of divvied it up by yes. notes each by each section. So Raraku. So what do we think of Mapo and Acarium? So the 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 whole like first few paragraphs of this section is like meeting aliens on an alien world. Mm-hmm. We have Mapo Runt with eyes the color of sand, mm-hmm. eating a blue cactus with his hands, which are built like spatulas, but covered in bristle, bristles on the back of them. Um, but he's sitting beside Icarium in his orange robes with his gray skin turning to olive and dripping black sweat. Now, he's dripping black sweat because his hair is dyed, not because his sweat mm-hmm. is black. Right. But it just adds to this whole sort of alien feel right Mm -hmm. you know and they're watching this flat-headed hairy beast with three legs um all the while the star wars cantina music is playing in the background (laughs) you know that that's sort of our first you know introduction to you know the beginning of chapter one is just alien thing piled upon alien thing nothing new for steven erickson right he did this in the last book as well right you know but he's he's hitting you heavy with the uh, these people are different than you. Right. But, you know, even in the last book, I would say we had mostly humans. Yeah, true. As, as Kara, we did have haunted puppets and some weird stuff happening. And a bargast. Sure. Bar- well, a bargast is a human. Oh, okay. It's just right. like a tall kind of barbarian type human. Yeah. But um, but they're all mostly humans. And now we have two you know, distinctly non-humans. For sure, yeah, it's a whole lot thrown at us at once. Trell, a jagu, and a diver walk into a bar. Like, 
but our Icarium is they're they're so they're tra- they're tracking like the signs of demons. They're they're going around the desert. They're trying to find um Icarium has got memory loss and you know can't remember his life. And so he's trying to figure out what's going on. We're not quite sure what Mappo's motivations are, but he's worried about this bunch of shapeshifters who are seeking ascendancy, or you know, they're all kind of heading in the same direction and they're approached by six wolves who are actually one being called a, a diver diver i don't know tell me audiobook diverse listeners. I, I don't divers mean, yeah anyway um we find we get, get it explained to us that there are kind of two types of shapeshifters the soul taken are shapeshifters who turn into one big creature and the diver mm. turn into which would you rather be able to turn into six different of six of the same kind of animal or one giant? Oh, definitely six of, definitely multiple. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this Devere is called Rolanderus, and he is hunting the the demon that they've noticed earlier, the Apatorian, who um, is a, a demon belonging to someone named Shaik. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know any of this, but we know that um, Rolanderus isn't afraid of Shaik. He is afraid of... Mapo and Akarium. He doesn't want nothing to do with them once no. he realizes who they are. Yeah, I thought I thought the description of the Aptorian was interesting. So it, they describe it in a way that makes it sound uh, like both cattle and a spy for Shadowthrone. So like both cow and spy. So like Agent Double uh, O Porterhouse. <laughs> But it's now one of Shaikh's pet, as you mentioned. But if we don't really know too much about him other than he's a general or commanding this other force. I noticed a couple of other observations they make in this sort of initial thing. Uh, the first is that Akarium is tall, like like really tall, like stands out as being, you know. Right. Because he's a, ja- he's a Jagu. Because he's, he's a Jagu, right? But then we say that Mappo Runt is big for a trell, mm-hmm. meaning that his name, Runt, is uh, the same as like calling the biggest guy in the motorcycle club Tiny. I, you know, I never picked that up before, but you're right. And they're out there uh, so that, you know, they're on the path of the hand. So Aquarium, you know, was seeking some sort of mystical gate or something. He's trying to like find himself, you know, like in the mm-hmm. same way like a college senior right. goes backpacking through Europe or or gets arrested on spring break, you know, like <laughs> trying to find themselves, right? Um, now, between the two, we talked about, you know, divers are soul taken, one being enormous uh, and the other being able to like break up into smaller pieces. I, I don't know enough about them. Other than, you know, we've seen some soul taken, uh, but just on the name alone, I'm going to have to say I'd rather confront the divers than the soul taken. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you had to choose based strictly on the names, you're not going to want to go up against the soul taken. Right. Like that that seems crazy. But I, it seems to me like the whole main point of this first section is to lay the foundation uh, or, or to drop the hints of convergence mm-hmm. once again. A bunch of powerful things showing up in this ancient holy land, mm-hmm. searching for what it appears to be is the same thing. Right. Or 
maybe they're searching for different things, but they're all, but it's all connected right. in some way again. Uh, and if the last book is any indication of what happens when there's a major convergence of power, uh, we are in store for batshit insanity. <laughs> At the level where you can't even predict what's going to happen. Because uh-huh. like the way the last book ended... There, there, there was no way you were going to predict yeah. what was going to happen. Yeah. No sane mind could conceive of that, Stephen Erickson. <laughs> so um, one last thing in this section I want to point out is there's a Mappo says or thinks something significant when he is talking to Rolanderous. Um, and at this point, Rolanderous, well, he comes up and challenges Mappo and Akari before he realizes who they are. You know, he's basically used to being the biggest and the baddest, and he's like, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and then he kind of is like, oh, wait, Akari, I'm sorry, man. I, I really don't have a problem with you. And Mappo says, hunt elsewhere, Rolanderous, before Akari does Treach a favor. Treach is Rolanderous's brother who tried to kill him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he thinks... Before you unleash all I am sworn to prevent. Yeah. So Mappo's got some kind of hidden depths going on, not fully explained. Um, And that's all I have for this narrative section. Again, a lot of things to put a pin in. Yes. Not a lot of answers yet, which, you know, first chapter, you wouldn't wouldn't expect otherwise. Mm -hmm. So now the next part here, we have Duker. And again... Is that how you pronounce that? Duker? Duker? You know. Duker. Either just sounds like a name given to the least popular kid in your college group. Duker. Duker or Dweaker. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Neither one is good. (laughs) For the record, in college, nobody called me Duker. (laughs) I didn't even think of that. I just, I want to be. That's really funny. Crystal clear. I I had a lot of. I just called you mom. I had a lot of nicknames. (laughs) Mom. Judy, <laughs> Daisy. Come to think of it, why were all my nicknames feminine? I don't. Know. <laughs> you were the responsible one. I guess. <laughs> oh, sidetrack. Sorry. So, Duker, the historian, is watching these soldiers, these Wiccan soldiers, arrive in the city of Hisar which is one of the seven cities. And I think it's cool because we've had the seven cities mentioned several times in Gardens of the Moon as being, you know, where some of the main characters were from Mm -hmm. and basically just saying that the seven cities are about to revolt. And you're kind of like, okay, maybe that's just like a layer of world building or a detail that's being thrown out there. But no, now here we are smack dab in the seven cities. Um, you know, plunked right down in the middle of things. So I have like a sort of little summary of like, what is the situation? Breaking news. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> right, in the cool. seventh. I don't, it's not actually a bit. I'm just uh, okay. going to recap it. So the high fist um, in this area is someone named Pormqual, which, you know, if, if you're going to be like an insufferable uh, middle management type guy, your name's going to be Pormqual. Yeah, right. I mean, if that doesn't make you think of John Lithgow's character from Shrek. Definitely, definitely. That's exactly who I had in my mind. So there's been um, insurrection brewing among these these 
locals in this city and Coltane, who is a fist in the seventh army is being sent to put it down because he is from that area. And he formerly was someone who led the insurrection. However, to greet Coltane, uh, Pormqual uh, did not come himself, but sent a, this fat unpopular priest named Malik Rell not Ralik Nam, yeah, Malik Rell. Because I'm not, I'm never going to get those names mixed up. Malik Rell is going to greet him, and this is sort of a calculated insult. Now, Malik Rell is someone who is unpopular because he has risen to power basically by accidentally killing everyone who's gotten in his way. Um, and Coltane just has this whole complicated history with the Malazans. This is like. This is like if you show up at your new job and your toxic ex already works there. Yeah. And you're just both like, ugh, you know, Coltane and the Wiccans show up and then there's just this really tense moment where they're they're trying to get off the boat and the guards are kind of standing there like they're not going to let them off the boat. And they're all kind of like, and Coltane handles it by by going up like he's going to challenge, like, he gets out his knife and he's like, and then he just stops and like turns his back and like completely in a dismissive, just kind of condescending way, turns his back on them. You know, they end up not fighting the guards, but this is all being watched by Duker and by um, Malik Rell. Malik Rell, who do not like each other. And two other uh, members of the of the Seven Cities military, one yes. of the captains and a, and a cadre mage. Yes. Don't really play a part, but just to sort of set the stage. Uh, the other thing I think that was interesting about Malik Rell is that it says he is a Gistal priest of the elder god of the sea, Mael. Yes. You know when the god is named Mael or Male, this is not going to be a benevolent force. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> also, I-, I thought it was interesting that, he, you know, he's like an an open priest of the elder gods. Cause my understanding is that like the only other really elder gods that we, that I recall was the one from Darujistan, um, Kural, mm-hmm. who really didn't have any active worshipers anymore. So it seems right. like, uh, you know, this seems to be at least on Genabacus, a relatively rare thing, but maybe it isn't on the seven cities. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. So in the the next sort of section that we have, we get reunited with some of our members of the Scooby gang, as they will be known, um, Fiddler, Crocus, Absalar, and Callum. They arrive at a different part of the Seven Cities, um, the Erlatan Coast. Apparently, there are giant centipedes here. and my- Swimming ones. Probably my favorite scene of this section that we read today was when they are, you know, they're on the boat. It's from Fiddler's perspective, and he does not like water. He is not happy being on the boat. This enormous centipede, like a ship sinking size centipede, rears up. It's a soul taken. And it's, you know, basically like, you puny mortals, I am going to kill you, but I'll do it quickly, you know. Mm. And um, he's like, you poor fisherman. And Fiddler shoots a crossbow shaft at him the beast you know just kind of contemptuously snaps it but it's a, it's an explosive and it just blows its head off yeah and filler just goes you got the wrong fisherman <laughs> <laughs> i like it so here was you know the end of the last section the beginning of this section was when i started having to break out the maps 
Ah, okay. Because uh, my first like two reads reads through this, I'm really just thinking of all three of these things as being in completely separate areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the Raraku Desert, the city Hassar, where the where Coltane is is mm-hmm. landing, and then where uh, these these bridge burners are from. But then I start thinking about like how they got here versus where they were going and all these city names start to kind of um, confuse my brain. Mm -hmm. So I I start breaking out the maps and like really pouring into them and I'm finding maps online and, you know, and, and zooming into them and trying to like track Mm -hmm. all of this. Um, And it turns out that they're not nearly as far away from each other as you might think they are. Right. For example, the Raraku Desert and Erlaton are essentially adjacent to each other. Right. Um, now, I think, you know, the distance on the maps uh, makes it feel like it's a lot closer than it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, if this, if I read this accurately, their trip across the Otateral Sea, which looks to be a relatively small sea. Mm-hmm took two months mm-hmm. i mean i know they're in a tiny ship but my goodness that is that is a huge trek to undertake mm-hmm. on a tiny little ship and it indicates you know that this land is huge um but uh, my point there being that Akarium and mapo trail or mapo runt rather uh and kalam and fiddler are, are all kind of going to the same area mm-hmm. you know duker comes from aaron which is a little bit further to the north and east. You know, Hisar is not really that far from mm-hmm. where they from where they were going. Yeah, um, and they're probably going to have to 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 boat right past it if they ever actually make it to um, back to Itkokan. They're going to have to go right past it anyway. So, so I'm just trying to get a sense of the lay of the land. What I did think right. was was interesting, and it gets brought up in this section by by Crocus is. The way so the way that they got from Darujistan to Erlaton was not the most direct route. Mm-hmm. They could have gone a more direct route and gotten there probably a little bit faster. Um, but it wasn't crazy out of the way. Mm-hmm. However, they're supposed to be going to Itko Khan. Right. And it's a little like uh, trying to get to Brazil from Paris by taking a boat to New York City. Right. Like, this, like not anywhere close. I mean, they aren't opposite directions, but they are nowhere near each other. Yep. You know, and Crocus starts immediately complaining after, you know, the giant centipede-headed monster mm-hmm. disappears into the depths. You know, why, you know... Why are we going here? It would have been faster and more direct to just go straight there. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's my that's my geography rant. Geography rant is over. Yes, and that's kind of the crux of this, you know, bit of story of what happens is, you know, Crocus finally calls out Callum and Fiddler, like, there's something going on here. Like you're you know, you yeah. said, Oh, we want to take sorry or Absalar home because we owe it to her. He's like, what else is going on? And so Callum and Fiddler open up about their real goal and they, they are intending to help Absalar get home. But first they're going to, you know, just commit a little bit of regicide. <laughs> yeah. Light spot of 
assassination. I mean, it seems on like, the way. <laughs> you know, it seems like of the things you would do on the way. Mm-hmm. It seems like you would maybe drop somebody off on the way to your regicide instead of. <laughs> committing regicide on the way to dropping somebody <laughs> off like it, it seems a little you know of a strange order but i mean but uh, it's obviously a, a, a way of they need crocus and absolar's help and so they are so not only do they say oh by the way we're gonna go kill the empress yeah they start off by saying don't you love your city yeah, yeah. crocus <laughs> don't you know that everyone yeah. you love is going to be enslaved or killed haven't you seen the propaganda i mean the if posters you don't know <laughs> if you don't help us so crocus and absalar are being kind of sucked into this but yeah. what's very uh, what's intriguing is absalar's reaction to hearing callum talk about killing the empress and Mm -hmm. so obviously absalar's mind has been returned to herself for the most part but we still see glimpses of cotillion we don't know if cotillion's in there or if it's just his his influence um but when um callum talks about killing the empress absalar leans back and does this like weird half smile you know and and she still gets these flashes of memory of as far as who people are so we do get some little little tidbits about the bridge burner's past. Well, you know. So the other thing that I thought was, I don't know, perhaps serendipitous or uh, I, it, it's a it's a puzzling thing to unpack is Absalar being there and what Shadowthrone and Cotillion's participation in all of this might be. Because if you remember back to that initial interaction in the prologue of Gardens of the Moon, they were saying, you know, folding their fingers together and twisting their mustaches and say, yes, she is perfect. She will do. Uh-huh. She will wreak our revenge upon that dirty, 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 gray-skinned empress, you know? Uh-huh. And then they sent her off to join the bridge burners where she got sent on the other side of the world. Right. And you're like, well, that like if the, the intention was for her to be this assassin who was going to kill the empress, she immediately got sent the other direction. Mm-hmm. And yet now here she is post being awakened mm. and yet now she's actually on a mission that's going to attempt to assassinate the Empress. So, you know, how much of that did they know about? I- I'm assuming not much. And that was more of, um, you know, that was more of Opon's influence. But at the same point in time, it is sort of playing out the way they wanted it to play out. When you Except have to wonder that she doesn't have her, you know, they don't have control of her at right. this point, or, or we don't think they do. But she still has some of the memories. Yeah, that yeah. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't otherwise have. And we saw at the tail end of the last book that she still has some of the skills. Yes. Because like embedded deep down in her synapses are the same sort of instincts and training. Mm-hmm. So she can snap into, you know, quickly cutting a throat. Right. You know, at the, at the drop of a hat. Right. So a little bit of mystery there. There are two other questions that I leave this section with. The first one is the one that, you know, that uh, Kalam and, and Fiddler ask, you know, why in the middle of this ocean is this huge soul taken you know, hiding out here and sinking boats. Like, and Filler says, do you think it's related to, no, no, 
Related to what? Crocus says, oh, nothing, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing, nothing. And we don't, you know, they don't really unpack for us and tell us what what that is. The only thing I can think of is it relates back to what we talked about in the beginning of the chapter with just there being sort of a general convergence mm-hmm. on, you know, the Raraku Desert because the Erleton Sea butts right up against the desert. Yes. So just all this convergence of power being drawn to this area. I, I can't think of it being anything more than that. Yeah. But I but I but I don't know. I don't know. And then the second is that in the beginning of the chapter Fiddler says, "What is it that Kalam and Quick Ben are up to?" He knows they're up to something, but he professes not to know what it is. Mhm. But then at the end of the chapter, when Crocus is like, "What are you all up to?" Fiddler sort of lays out the idea that they're going to go assassinate Lacine. Right. And it seems like that is what Kalam and Quickben were planning. Mm-hmm. So it seems like he knows generally what they're doing, and maybe he just doesn't know how they plan to do it. Mm-hmm. Or there's a whole separate thing going on that I just don't have any knowledge of it all. Right. Well, certainly it seems that Fiddler thinks that there's a separate thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. I- I'm taking it that it's just that he doesn't know the plan. hmm But I don't know. We shall find out. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for some listener interactions? Yes, indeed. All right. So a couple of weeks ago, we had planned on recording this episode, but Liz got uh, the death croupkitis... Bronchitis, Krupa, Saurus, Rex. I don't know what you got. Um, But it put you out of commission for a little bit, so we couldn't record. Uh, So we put up the note, and we said, Liz is recovered. We're planning on recording. Please get your questions in here. And so Jeremy Doyle says, uh, glad that you are feeling better, as did many, many other people. And we thank you for your concern. Jan Godfrey said, uh, you starting Dead House Gates? Dead House Gates. (laughs) It's a dead house. Uh, to which he says, that prologue is intense. Yes. And then asks, who do you think was under the flies? I mean, I think it was Hood's one of Hood's priests. Mm-hmm. And I think they just got consumed, not necessarily by the flies, but by whatever happened between those two gods and their little dick measuring contest that mm-hmm. happened on judgment's round that's my take all right in lack of with the absence of any other evidence uh, christian Chris- prater says uh what's the secret that the priest wanted to tell hebrick aboric he of the light touch i'm looking at you well, liz these, what these if, questions are that? for you because i've read the book <laughs> So you're supposed to answer the prediction ones. Mm, okay, so that tells me that the answer will be revealed. It that does the, not tell you anything. It tells me that there is an answer it to that It does not question. tell you that. <laughs> it tells you nothing, Dukes. Oh, it tells me something. Nice try. <laughs> I, I mean, I have honestly not even the beginning of the slightest of clues. Mm-hmm. Not even the slightest of clues. Uh, all right, to be determined. Nicole Dietloff says... As they say in Minnesota, ufta. Ufta? Ufta? We don't know. We're not- <laughs> yeah, not from Minnesota, yeah. <laughs> this is almost getting too dark for me, but I'll keep reading while cringing. It is dark. It is dark, friends. 
We had, you know what? We yeah. had like three books of very kind of light, lighter Sanderson yeah. fantasy. And now we are definitely on the dark side. Yeah, this is not Sanderson. No. Uh, also, Fiddler says the boy's sharp when considering Crocus. Did we skip a few years between books or is Fiddler not too sharp? No, I, I think it, it seems like this journey has taken maybe the better part of a year. Right. Yeah. Um, and meaning Crocus is 17 or 18 years old. And I think what we have, have said before about teenagers is that you are as smart as you're ever going to be. And yet you don't know shit. And I think that's kind of what we see in Crocus is a an intelligence and an ability to pick up on what's going on around him, uh, but at the same point in time, a lack of wisdom to know what to do about it. Right. You know, but I think it's as a demonstration that Crocus is getting smarter. Indeed. Uh, Jan Godfrey says, we say Ufta in Norway as well. Nice. I think that's because they're the same people. Did people people from Norway settle in Minnesota? I think people from Scandinavia tended to settle around the Great Lakes. That's why they're all tall. That's hot. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That you know that, not that, you know, people live in the Great Lakes. Uh, That just seems like a fact of (laughs) life to me. Okay. I like it. Okay. Theo Graham Brown says, Pen Pots and Hills. I mean, you can't just stick an apostrophe wherever you want and call it a fantasy name, Steve. I mean, can you though? I think he did. I think, yeah. I'm sorry, Theo. Honestly, I think he's I think he's laying on top of a very rich tradition. <laughs> it's true. I mean, Menzo Baranzin and like uh-huh. I mean, there's a there's a million fantasy books where it's like, let's put let's have a word that has 18 letters. 13 consonants and two apostrophes. I mean, jives to me. <laughs> so he also says divers. He points out that divers means of varying types. Oh, okay. Diverse, so what's that yeah. apostrophe about? Just to make it seem more fantasy-ish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it also could be, this crossed my mind, particularly with this word, mm-hmm. uh, that it could it could also be the French influence in Canada. Mm, yeah. You know, because uh, the French are are fans of slapping a ra- random apostrophe in the middle of a word. Mm, it would seem that way, but more that's when you take two words and make them a contraction. As the uneducated, particularly in the uh, the French language, I'm going to say they seem to like their apostrophes. Having said that, I guess. To your point, somebody could look at us and be like, you dudes are using apostrophes all the time. Yeah, it's, it's but we just use the them same, at the end of words. It's the same it's thing different. in English as when you make a contraction. Yeah. Like can't is, you know, two words made. It's the same thing in French. Anyway, huge divergence there from what we're talking about. Um, Theo also says, did Erickson watch the Rambo film where he blows up the entire ship with a bazooka or something before he wrote the bit where Fiddler takes out the soul ticket? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely what came to my mind. He said, because I am here for high fantasy crossing over with 80s faction films. Yes. Honestly, that was probably my least favorite part of the, of the section. Uh, what? You got yeah. the wrong fisherman? Not the line. Blowing but, up the giant centipede head? Uh, yeah, like... Come on! Like, 
here is this massive beast. It's a soul. And remember, our last experience with Soul Taken were the dragons over Jerusalem. Right. Right. You know, and so it's like this big, huge, monumental thing, and it comes up from out of nowhere, and he pops up with a crossbow and blows its head off. Chapter one and moves on, like no kind of greater consequence from it. Why didn't he do that to one of the, you know, like. Okay, so two thoughts there. One, this really highlights the difference between a soul taken and an ascendant. So mm-hmm. Anamander Rake is an ascendant. Yeah, He's and a soul taken. And a soul taken. Yeah. So then there are all these other just like soul taken who think they're hot shit. But they're on the path to ascendancy. They're not as powerful as Anamander Rake. Anamander Rake probably would not have been killed by an exploding crossbow quarrel. Um, but this is not, this giant centipede was just not on his level. And also to highlight, the bridge burners were badasses. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, they definitely were. So you have Fiddler who is, you know, really kind of, and I love Fiddler because He's really just kind of like the if I was a bridge burner, I feel like I'd be fiddler. Like he's always leaving his sword in a puddle and mm-hmm. he's always just like, God damn it, I hate boats, you know, and I probably would do both of those things if I was a bridge burner. But at the same time, it's like he doesn't just have a crossbow. He's got, you know, munition headed crossbow bolts. You yeah. know. I- I'm not it wasn't deeply upsetting. I would just say my it was the least interesting part. Of the section I to mean, me. We can agree to not agree about this. <laughs> Theo says also his hood claimed a death close to Piran yet, or is that still to come? I mean, his father and his mother both died, yes. Both died. And you technically know, his girlfriend. And technically his girlfriend. Uh and then, you know, his two sisters kind of get you know pulled different ways, mm-hmm. one being I feel like I feel like Hood's promise <clears throat> has been delivered. Um, he also says, uh, this prologue predates A Feast for Crows by five years. Mm. Uh-huh. Reckon George R. R. Martin had it in mind when he wrote Cersei being driven through King's Landing. And I mean, I don't know that he would admit it if he did, but it's, a, it's kind of an iconic, you know, this is sort of a I mean, it's a, an not, iconic scene. It's, you know. It's by no means... Um, I mean, it is something that happened in history. Yeah, I would say probably more comes from history. Yeah, I think he's. I think he was much more motivated by real life historical occurrences when writing uh, Song of Ice and Fire, and, and, and probably Stephen Erickson was as well. Because again, we know yeah. that he was mm-hmm. a, a, a anthropologist and a scholar. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. By the way, who writes really good essays um, and, and puts them on Facebook, and he wrote one recently about. Uh, death and the afterlife that mm. just knocked my socks off. So if you don't follow Steven Erickson on Facebook, I would recommend it because he'll just like handwrite these essays and just throw them out there. Hmm. Really interesting stuff. Margaret Schneeman says, hooray. We, we feel the same. Absolutely. Totally Absolutely. Agree. Matt Hargreaves says, how did you feel about the complete shift in continent slash climate of the seven cities as opposed to Genabacus? For me, when reading Dead House Gates, there was this overwhelming sense of unescapable dryness about the land, and I immediately wanted to get back to Genabacus. Oh, yeah. I get that. Even just like, you know, the cover of the book is just this yellow, just cloud of dust that you're looking at. 
Well, I definitely, you know, I would say that's definitely the case with the Roroku Desert. I, I didn't, I would say I didn't feel that same sense, however, um, strictly because the next two sections were so based around the water. Coltane shows up on a ship. We, you know, end up, uh, you know, on this small craft, uh, this bark with the members of, um, you know, the bridge burners and, and, and all of that. So I, I would say I didn't feel quite the same way. Maximilian France says, uh, question, where the hell do the characters from Gardens of the Moon go? Yeah. I, and we, we did uh, address that a little bit, but yes, they, a lot of them do not come up in this book. And I wish the first time I had read this, because the first time I read this series, I, I read Gardens of the Moon, took me a while to get into it, but then I was very sucked in. And I got about three quarters of the way through Dead House Gates and literally threw it in disgust at one point because I finally paged through the last quarter that I hadn't and realized that none of the like, no, really, none of the characters are good. And I just was like, ah, see, and my experience was kind of the opposite because I knew what your experience was. So I was told definitively Mm -hmm. none of the characters from Gardens of the Moon show up in this book. So mm-hmm. I was prepared for it to be literally, oh, literally 100% none of the characters. Mm-hmm. So I had the opposite experience when I got, you know, halfway through the first chapter and I'm like, Fiddler, come right. on. <laughs> yeah. You know, because um, to be honest with you, I, for whatever reason, I didn't read the Dramatis Persona right uh-huh. away. I went back and did that later. Right. Um, which is not what I did in the first book. But anyway, um, so I... Um, yeah, so when I when when I found actual characters mm-hmm. from the first book, I had this sort of like you know happy yay reunion feeling because mm-hmm. I had no expectation that it would occur at all. Eric Allgaier says, uh, "So glad was I to hear Elizabeth was healthy again that I'm including extra circumflexes just for the Duchess." <laughs> uh, P.S. The Duchess. Yeah. They aren't limited only to the E's or even just to vowels. I don't know how you, I don't know how you <laughs> theoretically pronounce that. Um, B, I'm sure this is too late to make the podcast. Nope. <laughs> it's not. Uh, but let me ask, uh, we know you wouldn't want Baudin marrying your daughter, uh, but if you were some in, in some sort of Walking Dead type of life or death scenario, would you want him on your crew, someone to plunge his hands into the filth so you can keep your hands clean, or is he just too dangerous? Uh, no, definitely. He's willing to rip off an old lady's head to protect himself. And he'll let me stand behind him. I think you definitely want bought in on your crew. See, I don't know. Really? Yeah. I mean, I guess if I'm in the exact same circumstances and mm-hmm. I'm not the old lady, sure. Uh, but other than that, I, you know, outside of that very particular circumstance, he doesn't seem like a great dude. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go the opposite direction. I'm going to say, no, I don't want that dude. Too, too unpredictable, right. too much of a wild card. Okay. And I don't know that it's not going to be my head tossed into the crowd. Oh, that's true. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, he's just as likely to kill you as the mob. That's true. Okay. Well, but those apparently are he's not interested in Fellison. Apparently not. He likes him skinny. I guess so. I guess he does. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else? 
that is all of our listener interactions. All right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Almost almost got away without making predictions. All right. Let's hear them. Predictions. What are your predictions? Okay. So I have a few, actually, more than I thought I would come up with. So my first, Pormqual doesn't survive the book. Okay. Uh, because anybody named Pormqual is not somebody that the author is going to want to spend a lot of time with. Uh-huh. Um, two, Fellison is going to end up in the Otateral Mines. Uh, three, uh, Fiddler, Kalam, Aspilar, and Crocus are going to get uh, to the uh, to Erlatan right when the order to complete the cull goes out. Mm-hmm. So they're going to get there, and then the cull is going to begin. Uh, number four, whatever Kalam is looking for is going to take him into the Raraku Desert. Okay. Uh, number five, Crocus will try to get Absalar to leave Fiddler and Kalam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my last one is that Mael, the elder god, is responsible for, or at least involved in, mm-hmm. uh, the Raraku being a desert instead of an ocean anymore. Okay. So those are my predictions. Good predictions. I love it. How many of them did I get right? I'm not going to tell you. Man. One of these days I'm going to trick you. <laughs> that third one. Got that third one. He nailed it. <laughs> well, good night, everybody. Good night. Have a good one. Uh, you can find us on social media on Twitter at the DND podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Dusset. Duke and Duchess, really where most of the interaction happens is on our Facebook uh, group page. Just look for the D&D group and all the other social medias just by searching for the Duke and the Duchess. We're not on TikTok yet. We're too old for TikTok. We're too old. We're just too old for TikTok. (laughs) All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.